There are many Christian traditions that vary in style, approach, and focus. We start exploring some of these diverse traditions to better understand one another after the music. Welcome to the Upwards Podcast, an initiative of Upper House on the campus of the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Through meaningful conversations, we explore the life of the mind and questions of the soul to enrich our university, our community, and the church. Be sure to subscribe and give us a rating on your preferred podcast service and check out our upcoming events at upperhouse.org. Hello and welcome to Upwards. I'm your host, Dan. At Upper House, we exist to serve the UW and the larger Madison community, which includes many of the churches oriented around the university. There's a vibrant ecosystem of churches around UW, many of them serving as places where students, faculty, and staff of the university worship together. I've recognized this important dynamic in my time at Upper House, so we're excited to start a new series on Upwards where, when we can squeeze it into our regular schedule, we'll explore different faith traditions with the aim of growing an understanding and shared vision for this campus and this city. My conversation is with Anglican priest Scott Cunningham, whose passion for the Anglican tradition is infectious and his personal story is compelling, as you'll soon hear. Father Scott Cunningham is the pastor of Christ Church Madison, and he served in the Anglican Communion in America and England for almost two decades. We get into much more about his backstory and education in the conversation, so we'll leave it there. If you have particular traditions or particular clergy you think we should consider, please message us at podcast at slbrownfoundation.org with suggestions. One more note before we get into today's conversation. Upper House has launched a brand new podcast called With Faith in Mind, and it's available on all podcast platforms. It's a way for us to take a deep dive on complicated topics and bring top-notch experts to share their insights on the issues and questions that are relevant to us today. We hope you'll give it a listen. We hope you enjoy this Upwards conversation with myself and Scott Cunningham. Want to start by um, just uh, asking you sort of uh, where where you come from, where you grew up. Yeah, um, uh, yeah maybe we'll start there. Yeah, so it, that, it's an interesting question. I moved around a little bit, but broadly, mm. I come from the South. Mm. So um, my family is all deep Texan and Oklahoma, split mm. kind of between mom's side, Oklahoma, dad's generations are all Texas. So. Uh, that's kind of where my family comes from. My really formative years, like all of my teenage years, were in Memphis, Tennessee. So that's mm. all middle school, high school. Um, and so after I graduated from high school, my parents moved back. So that's not really where I'm from anymore. Mm. Uh, but that's that's who I come from. So uh, pressing question, who, yeah. who do you root for in football? <laughs> so um, Memphis... I don't root for the Titans because I think their jerseys are awful and Memphis and Nashville have a bit of a thing. Uh, I had no idea. Okay. Yeah, there's yeah, also okay. <laughs> no really big school. Memphis people will get mad at me for saying this. So you kind of just choose an SEC team. My brother went to LSU, so I always was a fan of LSU. Okay, okay. But I, I mean, I've lived in Wisconsin long enough. I, I root for the Packers. You okay. Know? So as, yeah. you know, Paul yeah. becomes all things, all people. So you don't have like Oklahoma or Texas? Uh, um, my Moses. dad's a Longhorn. My mom's a Sooner. Yeah. Okay. So I, I would root for both of them when they're playing each other. I don't really care. I, yeah, I, it's awkward. But my my dad is is firmly orange, and my mom would be maroon. Yeah. Excellent, excellent. Okay. 
Well, um, you know, obviously you, um, you become a pastor. So give us mm -hmm. a bit of a sense of your, your religious upbringing. Yeah. Mine is, is a bit unique. I think I, my dad was a pastor, was a, mm. a minister. Um, both of my grandpas were Southern Baptist preachers. Mm. Um, my great grandfather was an itinerant Southern Baptist preacher in Texas. Um, my uncle, my aunt are both ordained ministers. My brother is a pastor. Weirdly enough, this wasn't a part of our love story, but my wife's dad is a pastor. So basically mm. everyone in my family yeah. has been in ministry and predominantly Southern Baptist ministry. So that's very much my background. Mm. I grew up in largely Southern Baptist, very large churches from a, a family that had deep, deep traditions and roots in that tradition. So that, that's, that's kind of my, my stock. Were you uh, interested in religion as a kid? Was it just sort of something you had to do? I don't know. <sighs> there, yeah, but I honestly, I think my testimony is really a testimony to God's faithfulness through my family. I mean, I, I, I always knew who Jesus was. And I, I think even when I was a little kid, um, I had a real relationship with Jesus and I was, I was raised in all the, the riches of the inheritance of faith. And I've wandered and was a sinner and had my times of really coming to Jesus in my life. Um, but, but I, I grew up in the faith and yeah. I, I praise God for that. So, I mean, yeah, like, it was my dad's job. It was what mm -hmm. my it was what everybody did. It's like like some people grow up and their like family has a trade. Like that was my family's trade, uh, which has its great benefits and great weirdness to it in some ways. But I'm smiling because it's very similar to my story. Yeah, um, I I grew up a missionary kid and had missionaries deep into the, where, the extended where, family. Where did you grow up? Uh, Germany was where cool. we were overseas and then um, moved back and ended up spending a lot of my like middle school, high school in um, Colorado Springs, which mm. is where the home office for the mission gotcha. was located. But, um, you know, can trace back on both sides of the family, multiple generations of pastors or missionaries. Mm. And so I remember thinking, and I didn't have like a strong rebellion uh, streak in me, but I remember thinking like, I probably want to do something else. Like I, mm. I'd like to, and of course now I'm back working yeah. for a Christian organization. So it's sort yeah. of... Um, uh, God often has bigger plans than, yep. <laughs> than anything yeah. you have. Totally. Do you, w being a good Southern Baptist, um, yeah. do you sort of date your uh, your conversion or, or your sort of walk with Jesus to a particular time in life? Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, I, I thought a lot just the, I, I think maybe how I understand conversion has changed over mm. time. Mm. Um, but there were, there were moments, I would say when I was in middle school, um, and early high school when I, mm -hmm. I had profound uh, conversion moments, you know, mm -hmm. I think I, I'm still being converted in mm -hmm. some ways. Mm -hmm. uh, but there were times as a, as a early to mid teen where I really had these uh, profound encounters with God and really fell in love with Jesus and, and like absolutely fell in love with the scriptures. Mm -hmm. And so, um, yeah, m my middle teen years were, were really powerful for that. Mm for that reason. And I would say that was a huge part of it. And this was in Memphis that yep. you were, yeah. Memphis. Okay. All right. So take us through uh, to the next stage of the story. Where do you go to college and yeah. sort of how does that? So I, I lived in Memphis. I became obsessed through a random camp counselor with uh, what we might call the inkling CS Lewis. Mm. Uh, I, the first thing that got me into reading 
this will get to answer your question, but I don't know why he gave it to me, but as like a eighth grader, I wanted to read something and I asked my camp counselor what I should read. And he recommended The Man Who Was Thursday by G.K. Chesterton. <laughs> Have you ever read that book? Yes. It's bonkers. <laughs> yes. Why would you recommend that to an eighth grader? <laughs> I understood nothing that happened in it, but something in it literally like unlocked in me. It's mm -hmm. just something about G.K. Chesterton's imagination. And so I just went down this wormhole into mm -hmm. basically C.S. Lewis, G.K. Chesterton, all these different guys. And I found out that Wheaton College, which is a little Christian school in Chicago, had a center for J.R. Tolkien, mm -hmm. C.S. Lewis, Dorothy Sayers, G.K. Chesterton, Charles Williams, all these guys. And I never met anybody that even knew anything about those mm -hmm. guys. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, okay, well, I guess I'll go to Wheaton. <laughs> <laughs> so I went to Wheaton College. And uh, yeah, then my, my story kind of goes from there. I've, I've never lived in the South. I've lived in spurts, but mm -hmm. I, I never have been back. I've, I've spent time in the UK and then a lot of time in Chicago and Wisconsin. That's great. Well, another overlap is I loved C.S. Lewis as a kid, too. Um, by the way, this is a slight detour, but um, when we're recording this, I have on my mind, we're doing this um, work on the spiritual history of UW. And so mm. I've been reading about sort of past people who've come through UW and had some type of religious uh, episode in their life. Mm. Marshall McLuhan, the mm. uh, media studies guy yeah. who created the Medium's Message, had one year here. In 1936-37, he was a graduate teaching assistant Whoa. in the English department. That year, he converted to Catholicism. Hmm. And uh, the thing that did it was he was reading G.K. Chesterton. Wow. So, um, so I was just reading about G.K. Chesterton last night and sort of how that unlocked for McLuhan, this yeah. like new, he grew up a Methodist and sort of was, was nominal in that faith. Yeah. And then started reading Chesterton and actually published some essays while he was here that ultimately led him to be uh, wow. welcomed into the church uh, just across the street at St. Paul's um, back, back in 1937. Fascinating. Uh, um, so anyway, lots of connections yeah. there. Uh, love, love Chesterton uh, as well as Lewis. Yeah. Um, okay, so you're at Wheaton. I yeah. think a lot of our, that's actually one of our uh, cities that listens to us, that downloads us the most is Wheaton, huh. Illinois. Um, and, it's uh, a crazy place. An amazing, often called the uh, the Harvard of the evangelical world, sort of a... Yes. A, we prefer to say that Harvard is the Wheaton of secular humanist uh, colleges. <laughs> very good. Very good. <laughs> uh, what, what was it like there? Uh, was it uh, an enlivening experience? Was it something that was challenging? Yeah. I, I, had, an awesome, I had an awesome experience at Wheaton, mm -hmm. um, spiritually and intellectually, it, at least when I was there. Um, it was... Uh, I mean, it's a liberal arts college that really highly values both confessional gospel Christianity and a deep and wide ranging academic intellectual life mm. pursuit. And for me, my, my spiritual, my faith just was so deeply enriched while I was at Wheaton, while at the same time, um, I basically studied music, literature, and theology. Um, I did a weird kind of liberal arts major and was just constantly studying all these different disciplines that... Um, all were coming together in different ways around kind of my understanding of the gospel and Jesus and everything. And it was just really, really good. So that was super rich. Mm. Wheaton is this weird Mecca of evangelicalism. So there's like mm. so many different Christian presses in Wheaton and ministries based out of Wheaton. And it's just very bizarre. So if you like struggle with like everything being Christian culture bubble all the time, like it can be pretty suffocating sure yeah but man i loved it and it 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 was a profound 
season in my life. Yeah. Well, not to spoil the story, but um, you're currently an Anglican priest. Yep. So how do you move from, uh, I, I assume, coming to Wheaton as a Southern Baptist yep. uh, to uh, yeah. sort of joining the Anglican tradition? Yeah. Great question. So I, again, I grew up in enormous Southern Baptist churches. So if people are listening from Madison, like Blackhawk would have been small, mm. like compared to the churches that I grew up going to. And, and I praise God for those really enormous Baptist churches. I met the Lord there. Um, but my first, when I first got to Wheaton, um, I knew one guy at Wheaton College who was in grad school and, uh, I didn't know where to go to church and he took me to his church and it happened to be a very small, very high church, Anglo-Catholic Anglican church. Mm. I didn't know what Anglican was. I'd never been to really any church, churches that were much different than the ones that I had always grown up in. And this one, you know, like icons on the back walls, like altars in the middle, you kneel down, like shaped like a butcher block, very, very Anglo-Catholic sacramental. Mm. People are in robes, full liturgies, all the smells and bells and everything. And I understood nothing of what was happening and it totally freaked me out. But at the same time, I was fascinated by something and I never went anywhere else, literally. And mm. I just kept on going back and that just became my little church. Um, so that, I can tell you about my, my Anglican story beyond that, but that was the entryway. And I mean, I had never said the creed on a Sunday morning. I literally thought the creed was written by Rich Mullins. I don't know if you know the, the Rich Mullins creed recording. Mm -hmm. So we said it in church and I was like, oh, like it's the Rich Mullins song, you know, that's where I was at. And, uh, but that, that was my entrance into Anglicanism. Hmm. What was the, do you remember the name of that church? All Souls. All Souls. Okay. Yep. Still um, in it. Still in Wheaton today. Yeah. I assume a lot of Wheaton people probably. Uh, yeah. The weird thing about Wheaton is, is, um, Obviously, there's so much, so many people go to Wheaton for a lot of different Christian jobs or things. I mean, so there's a lot of really influential churches in that little area. And there's a lot of Anglican churches. Mm -hmm. um, so our, the cathedral in our diocese is in Wheaton, Illinois. Um, so there's, there's multiple ones, but yeah. my friend happened to go to this little one and he took me there. Fascinating. Well, you know, it's one thing to uh, um, join an Anglican community. It's another yeah. to want to become a pastor or a priest in that tradition. Yeah. So what drew you to the life of, you know, the cloth of, of ministry? Yeah. Yeah, man, that's a great, that's a great question. So, I mean, I, I'd always felt that I wanted to be a pastor. I think going back to when I was a teenager or be in some kind of ministry. Um, and my journey of becoming an Anglican priest was a much longer one. Um, mm. I would say I went to that, that church in, um, in Wheaton, which was much more Anglo-Catholic, much more sacramental. Um, and I absolutely grew to love it. And, you know, we can talk more about Anglicanism and mm -hmm. sacramental life and stuff. But I just felt like I started breathing with an organ with a lung that I'd never breathed with before in my spiritual life. And it really awakened for me. But then I thought I care too much. It wasn't as much of a Bible church and it wasn't as much of a missional evangelism church, you know, and I remember thinking, I don't know if I could ever bring a non-Christian friend here, you know? And so I, I just didn't know, maybe I'm not one of these people, even though I love this. Yeah, yeah. But then when I graduated from Wheaton, I moved to England and I worked at a small evangelical Anglican church in Sheffield, England. And it was Anglican. It was under the big tent of the Anglican tradition. Yet it was much more what we might call low church, much more Bible emphasis. Um, 
much more evangelism focused. They were constantly out in the middle of the city, you know, serving the poor, leading people to Jesus through like cold evangel. They were just crazy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So then I was like, this is fascinating that all of this exists in this one thing. Um, and then I moved back from there. And after my wife and I got married, we started going to a church in Wheaton, a different Anglican church. Um, and when we were there, it, it really kind of brought all these things together where I started, I mean, after having been in Anglican churches for over a decade, I started to love the tradition and see mm. how all things kind of come together in word and sacrament. Um, and then from there was invited to discern holy orders. And it, it's just been a long Holy Spirit kind of tractor beam yeah. <laughs> sucking yeah. situation. But basically the answer to that is I, it, it, it happened very organically through multiple Anglican churches over a long time. Mm. Yeah. So Scott, you've mentioned high church and low church. We've talked about those as different types of, of churches. Uh, what do you mean by high church and low church? Yeah. I, I mean, the easiest way to explain it would be think of high church as what it would feel like when you walk into one of the beautiful Catholic parishes in Madison that has stained glass and robes and big liturgies and bells and smells and incense and all that kind of stuff that feels really ancient and uh, sacred and mysterious and all that thing. And then low church, think of rock music and, and drums and, you know, church services that are intentionally designed to not feel like there's any obstacle that, you know, it's just normal life, whatever. Right. That's, that's a, that's a, I don't know, pretty simple way of putting it, but that's kind of a, and there's, there are high church and low church theology too, you know, that would get into what we were talking about, but, right. but broadly speaking, that's a great example of the two ends of the spectrum. Right. So there's, for the low church, I think, um, there's like an intentional informality. Yes. A, a, a background assumption, some theological, some cultural, that formality itself or structure or liturgy is actually a barrier between you encountering God in yeah. that space. Whereas for the high church, it's actually that structure is a vehicle to encounter yeah, God. Totally. Um, so I, I'm a proudly a, a low church person. Yeah. So it's not actually, I mean, people use it in a sort of derogatory way, yeah. I guess, um, but it's not intended to be derogatory. It's actually just intended to describe totally the, uh, what's going on in the, yeah. in the tradition. And again, yeah. Within our tradition, you would find very high church Anglican churches and very low church right. Anglican churches that are, you know, different expressions in the same tradition. Excellent. So for, I mean, most of us aren't clergy. Yeah. When you, when you decide you want to pursue that, what, what's the process? Like, what do you, are you, are you talking to sort of people in the church, mentors? Yeah. Um, I assume there's some type of seminary training that's involved. Uh, yeah. Just walk us through yeah. how you do it. Yeah, so holy orders. So in our, our tradition and in other traditions that kind of observe the three historic orders of deacon, priest, and bishop. Um, in our diocese, it's really, it, it would be different by tradition and by diocese even within the Anglican tradition. But mm -hmm. for us, uh, it's a very big discernment process because you're mm -hmm. taking vows for life. It's, it's kind of like a, a marriage, mm -hmm. you know. Um, so it's a really big thing to take vows into the diaconate or the priesthood or the episcopate. Um, but uh, it, it really happens over a long time and it's communal led. Often mm. we feel a call to ministry, but uh, for us, it's just as much about the community that's around you discerning your call and inviting mm. you into that discernment process. And so mm. um, 
there's a lot of places where you kind of like do something online, get an MDiv, and like they'll just ordain you. But our church really doesn't do that. We, it's more of um, setting someone aside and confirming fruit that's already being born in their life. Mm. So I was approached um, to start discerning a call to holy orders as I had been just living and working in my church for a long time. And then that's a, a very, really big process for us on the way there. But so when you were approached, was yeah. that something you were anticipating or was that just sort of out of the blue? Um, no, I think I was anticipating it. Yeah. I mean, my, my journey when I, I got my master's at Wheaton College and while I was getting my master's, we were attending this other church, my wife and I, and um, we had wanted to go overseas. We felt called to, to go do ministry in a place where there wasn't as much resources, both theologically and, you know, financially as we yeah. have in the States. So I thought, why would we stay here? Well, yeah. Of course we would go overseas where there's greater need. Um, so I, I was expecting to go into ministry. I, it was unique that I ended up absolutely God called me to stay here and to enter into the priesthood and to church planning um, mm -hmm. in the Midwest. So that was a shock. Mm -hmm. being, being maybe invited into ministry wasn't as a shock as I felt that had been the tra trajectory of, of my whole life. But mm -hmm. um, it was more the, oh my gosh, I'm being called to stay in the Midwest and, and okay. be a priest here. That was a little bit more weird. <laughs> yeah. So how, how long was the process from be, sort of being approached asked to start the discernment process to when you're, um, I, I'm, I'm going to fumble with the wording here because I, I don't know exactly that's okay. when you're ordained or yeah. sort of uh, commissioned to lead your own sure. congregation. Sure. No, that's a great question. I bet I was approached and started formally discerning a call into pastoral ministry and for us, holy orders, I would say probably 2016, hmm. 2015, 2016. Hmm. And with, uh, I think the Orthodox do this as well, but I know Roman Catholics do it as well. You're always, you're never ordained to be a priest or consecrated as a bishop before being ordained as a deacon. Hmm. So you always hmm. begin as a deacon. Mm -hmm. And uh, you always remain a deacon. So even though I am a priest, I'm also a deacon as well. A deacon's a servant, right, of the mm -hmm. church. And so um, I was first ordained to be a deacon in 2017. Mm -hmm. um, and then if I, and then I began the work and not giving away anything about what I do. I pastor a church in Madison mm -hmm. um, that, that we helped plant in 2018. So then I came as a deacon and really started the work of church planning in Madison with, our, with Christ Church Madison. And then once there was this kind of body that had formed, they brought me back to our cathedral, to our bishop, and basically presented me to be ordained mm -hmm. as a priest. Got it. So I was ordained as a deacon in 2017, priest in 2018. And so that process, you know, two or three years long, but yeah. it, it's a years long process for us. Right, right. You've mentioned your wife a couple of times. What's her name? Marissa. Marissa. Yeah. Um, uh, does she have thoughts on you becoming a priest? Did she have thoughts? Oh, uh, yeah. Wanna... <laughs> no, she she loves it. Yeah. Okay. I'm, I mean, she she loves ministry too. And hmm. she, uh, one of our gifts is we just have a really joint calling to the church. And yeah. so yeah. she's all over it. Where did you meet her? Wheaton. Wheaton. Okay. Yeah. Did she go to the same church as you or was that a... Uh, not at first. She yeah. went to a different church. Um, but when we we got married, we we both ended up going to this, the same church. Anglican Church in yeah. Chicago, which is Church of the Resurrection. Okay, so, yeah, that's a that's a that's one I actually know the name of because yeah. there's a, some big names come through there. I guess. Is yeah, yeah, I yeah, yeah. Well, it's a cathedral church. I mean, it's it's yeah. a, and really in 
in the States. It's one of the bigger ACNA Got it. churches. Yeah. Anglican Church of North America. We'll, yeah. we'll get to that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, okay. So I think, I mean, we're, we're winding our way to Madison. And I think the question I have just listening to, to your story is um, why Madison as the place to, to plant a new Anglican church? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So my wife and I felt really called to, um, I, I would say there's two reasons. First, my, like, the biggest issue for me staying in the States in general is that there are so many churches. Mm-hmm. And it was really hard for me to, to plant anywhere where I thought people had options of places to go. Yeah. And even though, and these are like super nerdy, like, church planner stats and like mm. i don't even know where these statistics come from but like wisconsin <laughs> is apparently the least church state this side of both coasts mm. which is fascinating mm. this is like pew barna whatever yeah so like least amount of churches per person or something yeah this state. side yeah. of you okay. know the coasts yeah like new york portland maine san fran whatever wisconsin is it and madison obviously is the least church city in the least church sure. state sure. so um one of the things was we just wanted to go where there was a need. Mm. And actually, that was my biggest issue when I thought about church planning in Madison. I met with all the pastors from as many pastors as I could. And, you know, uh, when Paul says, I didn't build on somebody else's foundation, it's like, I don't want to do that either, you mm-hmm. know. Um, but all the the people I connected with and I tried to meet as many as I could in Madison said, oh, my gosh, there's need. Please come and plant a church here. Mm. So I think part of it was just the need. Um and in, in relationship to other places in the Midwest, because our diocese is the upper Midwest. Mm. Um, but another one, um, I mean, uh, another part of it was just our discernment journey. We felt, and I, that's a long story, we felt really called to Madison. Mm. But a uniqueness of Madison, we were really, we felt called to what I would say is a cultural high place, mm. uh, where there's kind of a, a culture making area. And Madison serves this really unique role in the state of Wisconsin, maybe in the country, but certainly in Wisconsin, where a lot of people from all over Wisconsin are sucked into this kind of spot. And like right. the isthmus is almost like a metaphor for, I think, what happens on a cultural level. It's this like super dense area. I mm. mean, this is y'all's ministry, right? right. There's so right. much learning. There's so many businesses that come here. Mm-hmm. Politics is here. People are here often for a short time and then they're spit back out. Mm-hmm. So it's like this like sucks everybody in and it spits them back out. And um, my wife and I felt really called to be ministering and to, to build a spiritual house in a place like this. Mm. Um, and then in our tradition, in word and sacrament, revival of the Holy Spirit, Anglican tradition, there's really not that many. We have a sister church, beloved sister church that's on the east side, but there, there's certainly not a bunch of churches like ours, right. not right. just in Madison, but in Wisconsin in general. So um, there's really, there's, there's so much more need for us to plant more churches in our tradition just because there's not a lot. Yeah, it's an interesting thing just to think about for people who are sort of familiar with Wisconsin that, um, of course, there are plenty of churches. Uh, yeah. There are particularly Catholic and Lutheran churches that have historic yeah. roots. There's pretty visible evangelical uh, churches as well. Yeah. Um, but to think that for, for other traditions, Wisconsin is sort of like terra incognita in yeah. terms of, uh, communities and congregations. And this you know? can get into what Anglican is, what Anglicanism is, but I think mm-hmm. in Wisconsin, you have really strong Catholic and Lutheran traditions with a lot of the immigrant populations that came with that heritage. Mm-hmm. You have a lot of EV free churches, which are a very strong reaction to right. that. So you have these huge, really flourishing in a lot of ways traditions on those poles, but 
we kind of find ourselves in the middle and there's not as much of that in Wisconsin. Right. Well, there's, I, I attend an evangelical free church and there's also a sort of interesting ethnic component to that too. If the mm. sort of Catholic and Lutherans tend to be German, mm. um, you know, the, the free churches tend to be from Scandinavian countries. And so huh. the, the immigrants were, Nor Blackhawk was, uh, which is the big evangelical free church in Madison, was originally part of Bethany Evangelical Free Church, mm. which is on the east side, which was originally called Batania Free Church because it was Norwegian. Wow. Um, and so there's these interesting ways where the immigration patterns that come into Wisconsin really do help explain a lot of sort yeah. of the church landscape. Um, that's not unique to Wisconsin. You could do that almost anywhere, but there's an interesting, unique history here. Mm. Um, uh, well, great. So we have you now uh, in Madison, uh, leading Christ Church. How would you describe Christ Church to the outsider, to the person who's just curious, you know, uh, where you're located, what do you do, uh, what are you about? Yeah, man, that's a that's a great uh, that's a great question. So we are a five year old church plant. I think I think our fifth birthday will be in November, and uh, we meet in we don't have a building, so we meet in Edgewood High School mm. um, in their Performing Arts Center there on on Monroe, and uh, I mean our the vision of our diocese and kind of the what the movement that we are part of is a revival of word and sacrament infused with the Holy Spirit. Mm. Um, and I can get into this more if we talk about kind of our tradition and kind mm. of what we're all about. But I think what what most people would would feel if they just kind of saw our church is it's kind of this middle road between maybe the deeper historic traditions like Catholicism or something else with a lot of liturgy and uh, robes and mm -hmm. an emphasis on the the Eucharistic life and worship and everything, uh, with uh, you know I don't know the kind of preaching that you would get at a Protestant church mm -hmm. or you know somewhere like Blackhawk and mm -hmm. it, we're also pretty charismatic so our, our worship is is more charismatic so it's this combination it's like this middle this middle road right, right. in some right. ways um, but I our particular vision is, I mean, we're a community coming home to Jesus and his church. And so a huge thing for us is this idea of building a spiritual house where people who have been, I don't know, disenchanted with church mm. or disconnected with Jesus for whatever reason. So whether they were pushed or jumped um, mm. and a lot of people leaving Catholicism um, and really wanting to interest, you know, they're getting interested in Christianity for the first time or had never really heard anything. Um, or people leaving kind of the evangelical church, church and have a lot of questions and bruises and whatever, um, we tend to be a place where those people can kind of have a reintroduction into historic mm. Christianity. Mm. So uh, people from my church will laugh if they hear me quote this, but a huge thing for us is this T.S. Eliot quote that comes at the end of the Four Quartets. Mm. Um, and obviously this goes, there's a lot of biblical stories we could talk about for this, but he says, we shall not cease from exploration and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. And I think a huge part of what we are really excited about is being a place where people who are on a journey of faith, whether that's interested in Jesus for the first time or they're like deconstructing, trying to figure out what they do on the other side of deconstruction, are able to come back home and kind of know historic, robust, orthodox Christianity in a way that they've never really tasted it. And yet it's, it's, it's still just Jesus. It's just Christianity. Yeah. So that's, that's a huge 
that's a huge part of our vision statement and kind of why we exist in Madison and we are building a spiritual house where people can come home. Yeah. What would you say is your typical, are students, um, families, who, who sort of typically yeah. attends? Um, all kinds of people. Um, we, we, there's a, we have a, a broad age diversity at our church, which is, is really rich. So there's a lot of families. There are a lot, a lot of younger people, people from the university. Um, when we planted our church, um, there's a lot of church plants or church ministries that start that really are like only focused on the university in mm -hmm. Madison. And mm -hmm. we love our university students, but we didn't only focus on the university. So we, our kind of scope is thinking about Madison as a city yeah. and the university has included that. So there's a, all different kinds of people from all different kinds of background mm -hmm. who are a part of our church. Great. Well, one of the reasons, think of that T.S. Eliot quote, by the yeah. way, um, there's this like, there's this metaphor of a journey. Yeah. And one of the reasons, Scott, I wanted to talk to you is because I had just recently finished a book called The Anglican Way, a guidebook by Thomas McKenzie. And this is a book, unfortunately, Thomas McKenzie uh, passed away suddenly a few years ago, I believe from a car yeah. crash. Yeah. And so when, when that happened, a lot of people sort of, there's an outpouring. Uh, a lot of people promoted this book. This is sort of his most popular book, The Anglican mm -hmm. Way. And it's basically a, a guide to his particular view of Anglicanism and what were its strengths, its characteristics, why you should become an Anglican. That, that comes very clear through the book. <laughs> like this is a please, please join us uh, yeah. type book. But I love the book. It was very interesting. Yeah. And so I was thinking, who could I talk to about the Anglican tradition um, and this book? And Scott, that's where you, uh, you came to mind. Rock and roll. Um, so, uh, well, one, you know, you're familiar with the book. What, what do you think? Do you have any thoughts, sort of uh, general thoughts on McKenzie's book? I think it's great. He opens it as I can remember and basically says, you're reading this for two reasons. Like you started attending an Anglican church and you're thinking, what the heck is this? Mm. Or your friend really wants you to come to an Anglican <laughs> church and you're, you're suspicious. And so they gave you this book. Uh, and I, I think he does a really good job. He, he has a really generous spirit and I, I, I find that book really helpful just as an introduction to Anglicanism because it really is a guidebook for people who are, are heading that direction or who are, are thinking about the Anglican tradition or, again, who just started to go to one and they're just looking for any resource to figure out, what, what is this? What am I a part of right now? Is right. this a cult? Is this, is this <laughs> have any bearing in history? You know, like, why have I never heard of this before? Right, right. So, Even down to really helpful, um, you know, really for an outsider, things like, what's the difference between Episcopalianism and Anglicanism? Yeah. Because for the outsider, it's like, those seem pretty yeah. well connected. And um, yeah, he gets into those sort of uh, detail things. But also, I think the, the really compelling heart of the book is this um, vision for the broadness of Anglicanism and mm -hmm. that it can hold a lot of diverse, you mentioned a few of them in your own church, sort of liturgical, evangelical, charismatic. These are words he uses to yeah. say, like, these are all part of the tradition. One I wanted to get your thoughts on, because it seems to be at the heart of a lot of what he's talking about, is the sacramental worldview, as yeah. he calls it, of Anglicanism. And I wondered if you could just help us uh, imagine you're talking to people who don't exactly know what a sacramental worldview is. What yeah. is that? And sort of how is that so central to um, Anglicanism? Mm, yeah, um, man, it, it is it is it is a huge part of of our tradition, of, of a lot of traditions, not just mm. Anglicanism, but it's a big part of um, what we believe and where we're coming from. So I think the the easiest way to understand it from somebody who's never considered it before. And sacramental is one of those words that it's like the princess bride thing. Like, I don't think that word means what you think it means. <laughs> like, it's cool 
And like at first, it's cool to say it's sacramental. You know, you can just you just bite down on that word. It makes you anything know? more important. It makes anything more important. Yeah. It's like, yeah, this <laughs> what we're doing this podcast is sacramental, you know? And I, especially for people coming from a non-sacramental context, it's easy to throw that word around. And for me, it took me a long time mm. until I really understood what it was to have a sacramental worldview mm. and to have a sacramental life. So I would say the big, I think the easiest way for me to explain it to somebody who's just like, what is that? It's understanding how our faith get t- gets tied down to physical embodied reality. Mm. Um, it's, how, it's how our faith is anchored in the thisness, the matter of life. Mm. Um, so our bishop always says, if you want to explain it most simply, it's that matter matters. Um, so it has to do with this relationship between the seen and unseen world. The Bible says that there's a, a visible world you can see, but Jesus is the creator of that world. He's also the creator of the heavens and earth, of the things unseen. And a sacramental worldview is understanding the connection between the visible world and the invisible world. Mm-hmm. Um, and a sacrament, like the classic definition, a sacrament is an outward and visible sign of an inner spiritual grace or reality. So it's this connection. And the easiest way to understand, I feel like the start of it for me, and again, this is a huge conversation, but the theologians have talked about how Jesus is the sacrament of God. It's Mm. like, it it basically is all rooted in our understanding of the incarnation. Mm. So no one's ever seen God. God is spirit, He's, he's invisible, and yet Jesus, um, becomes incarnate and the fullness of God is put into Jesus. Mm. And it's just this insane thing that the invisible God can now be seen and touched and witnessed, you know, mm. in this human. I mean, this is the incarnation, right? right? But he is a visible, as the Bible says, expression, incarnation of God. Mm. So when, who is it? Philip says, Show us the Father. Mm. Jesus says, how, how do you not get it? You know, yeah. you can't look over Jesus's shoulder to see God. So that's, mm. that's like a sacramental understanding. It's incarnation, right? The, the next step is that the church is the sacrament of Jesus. Mm. So Jesus is ascended bodily, right? He's in his resurrected body, but he breathed his spirit into the church our bodies, which have become the new temple. Um, and now the church is the body of Christ. And we don't just think about that like a metaphor, like the church is Jesus's body. It's this visible, physical thing that's in the world right now that we're a part of, mm. which is a place where the world can see and know Jesus. So I, I, I think that's the kind of the next stage is seeing how the church is the sacrament of Christ right. in a way. And so it's, it's anchored. Um, but then I think a lot of people have an idea of that. So like every tradition would have a sense of the church is the body of Christ. But I think the next step um, is seeing that how through the sacraments in the church and the sacramental life that in the church, it's not just an idea. It's actually rooted in the life of the church and what we do. So for instance, just to give one example, a big example with the Eucharist, there are three things that are referred to as the body of Christ. One is Jesus's actual body, Mm -hmm. right? 
the second is the church, the big body of Christ. But then the third thing is what Jesus holds up at the Lord's Supper. Right. This is my body. And somehow those are all connected. Um, and so I think for me, it, it, it was this experience where I think before Christianity often felt like lots of words and ideas and kind of spiritual emotional, but there wasn't a lot of anchor points or thisness. And mm -hmm. I think it was realizing through the scriptures um, and through the, the life of the church of kind of coming into a sacramental tradition that it's not just Christianity, our faith isn't just all about ideas and, and you know, scripture, even though it obviously is. Um, it's not just about the life of the spirit and experiences and worship, whatever, but also it's a sacramental life where you're actually meeting and communing with God through the life of the church and the sacraments. Yeah. I wonder if another appeal of <clears throat> the sacramental worldview um, is, and I'm just, I'm just thinking out loud here, but um, you talked about, you know, before you were introduced to this, you thought Christianity was a bunch of sort of just concepts and ideas. Yeah. I think also there's so much that particular traditions, and I'll talk about my own here, sort of a more evangelical tradition, puts on the internal life yeah. of, the, of the individual. Yeah. That's so much of what your connection to God, to Jesus, to the Holy Spirit is happening internally and sort of unseen. Yeah. And the sacraments, as I understand them, are like a visible, like they, they externalize yeah. what's happening inside. And so there's a way where yeah. you're both bringing down things from the ether and yeah. then also bringing them out of the person yeah. um, to, a, to a sort of communal uh, participation. Does that make, totally. does, does that resonate? Yeah. yeah. And that's what yeah. Jesus does. You know, again, it's all about Jesus. It's all about how you are connecting and meeting with Jesus. Um, and that's what, that's what Jesus does for God. He, he, the incarnation is this like focus point, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and so, yeah. And, and again, they're, they're the ways that Jesus is communicated and re is revealed through the sacraments in the church is one thing. And then the sacramental worldview mm. beyond just that is just seeing the world as connected to the invisible world right, and like, right. like seeing that our bodies matter. So for instance, I mean, like our, our view of sexuality is sacramental, mm. you know, mm. cause we see it as Paul would say, it's just Bible stuff that it's connected to these deeper stories, you know, and it, that goes for everything in life, you know, mm. and again, you can go crazy. It's all sacramental, but <laughs> ultimately it comes down to how Jesus reveals himself to us, how he meets us. So can mm. I give one example, please? So the, I think my favorite way in understanding word and sacrament is um, because these things always go in the church, right? Uh, every tradition has a sense of word and sacrament are both mm. important. Like mm. these things go together in the life of the church. And my favorite way of explaining to people how this works out is the road to Emmaus. Mm. So if people are listening and they're not familiar, this is in Luke 24. Um, it's after the resurrection. Um, so it's after Easter. But importantly, in Luke's gospel, no one sees the resurrected Christ at the, on Easter morning. So they see the empty tomb. Mm -hmm. So they know that, that Jesus is out and he's, he's alive. He's, he's out there somewhere. He's at large, but no one has seen him. And then Luke gives this story of the road to Emmaus. And I think absolutely what Luke is doing, it's not just a random story. He's kind of giving you a template for how we encounter and see and meet the resurrected Christ. And what happens in the road to Emmaus is two things. The first thing, he walks, so there's these two guys walking mm -hmm. 
Jesus comes up alongside them. They can't recognize them. They don't recognize Jesus at first, and they start talking. And the first thing that Jesus does is he starts leading them through the scriptures, right? right? And it's like the greatest Bible study ever that we all wish (laughs) we could have been there for, which some people would say it's just the New Testament. That's all what Jesus is doing. Um, But... Uh, so he leads them through this, their hearts start to burn. So something happens inside them as Jesus is interpreting all Moses and the prophets, all the things concerning himself. So obviously what, what's happening is, as Jesus says, the scriptures bear witness to him. What's happening is inside them, the word of God is starting to bear witnesses to bear witness to the reality of Jesus. Mm. But there's word right? That's, mm-hmm. that's yeah. the wordedness of our worship and the, our whole life together is like, it's all coming from that Emmaus moment. They don't see him yet. They get to the end of their journey. Their hearts are burning. Something's happening. Um, but then they stop and they say, hey, come some stay with us at this hotel. So they stay there. And then Jesus comes and he eats with them. Right. And what he does, and in the gospels, when Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, when he feeds the 5,000 and at the road to Emmaus, all of them contain the same four verb actions. Jesus takes bread, he blesses it, he breaks it, and he gives it. So these are like words of institution words. Um, so it's not, if it's helpful, it's not just any kind of random meal. He's, he's like celebrating right. the meal with right, them, you know? Right. And then they see him. And they say later, he was known to us in the breaking of the bread. So when I, when I try to tell people in our church why our life is anchored in word and in sacrament, it all comes down to meeting Jesus. We don't just do these things because they're cool and like it's a new cool practice to do, like gratefulness practices or whatever. Like, no, it's all about our like life of being saturated in the scriptures and our sacramental life. God is communicating himself to us. Mm. We actually see him and commune with him in word and sacrament. But, and all of that is dependent upon the Holy Spirit. Mm. You know, if word and sacrament are lungs, the Holy Spirit fills it. So that is a, it, something's happening, right. actually, you know, and that, that separates our tradition from some Protestant traditions that think of the sacraments are just memorial signs you know we we're a sacramental people we think there is a connection that god has uniquely ordained in the sacraments between the seen and the unseen where you are communing with god through these things what would you say to the uh interested but skeptical uh uh, visitor Hmm. who comes out of um for whatever reason i only want to get more particular than that for whatever reason see sacraments and sacramentalism as sort of uh, some type of legalism or some type of just burden on true yeah. heart religion or something like that where they're seeking for, uh, what they're seeking. Uh, like th- there's like a theological argument. There's sort of yeah. like a historical or biographical yeah. pitch you have to make too that like um, you need to rethink these things that you might be familiar with. How do you, how do you talk to people that come out of those traditions? Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, a part of it too is the worry about um, things being just superstitious or things being like just like legalistic, like rote, going through the motions type stuff. Formalism in like an old style. Yeah, Yeah. I think the first thing I would want to do is through the Bible, just show how significant it is that that Jesus really commands us. You know, Mm -hmm. the Anglican church 
like most Protestant traditions, there are two gospel sacraments, which are baptism and the Lord's Supper, even right. though we think all, a lot of things are sacramental beyond that. Those are the big ones. And like Jesus commanded those, you know, he, mm -hmm. he they weren't uh, like, hey, this might be a nice thing to tack onto your sermon and like worship <laughs> service if you want to. But like, right. like th those were a part of, he instituted those two things. So I think I'd want to mm -hmm. first just show how good they are and how Jesus focused they are. Um, but I mean, anything can become legalistic. Uh, and I, I, I think when it's full of the Holy Spirit and it's all focused on Jesus, uh, part of it is just kind of come and see in some yeah. ways. Yeah. Um, but anything can be wrote, you know? Yeah. So even if you go to a charismatic church, which is, um, and I love my charismatic brothers and sisters, you know, everybody's got their own liturgy. So there's a way for like altar times to become formulaic and right. going through the motions and right. okay we're going to do this you know so nobody escapes that at the end of the day yeah, well if i can answer my own question that would be that would, i would sort of think about um any christian tradition as long as if it's following some confessional sort of historic creed there there is liturgy yeah and sacrament and yeah. it depends on you just need to you can't get away from that i mean you'd okay. have to have like to get away from like a liturgy you'd have to just have a random service at some point yeah in the week yeah <laughs> with no agenda and then maybe you get away from some yeah. type of liturgy but otherwise i mean i i go to a church that would never say we have a liturgy and i don't think we do in the way that a lot of people would say it but there's an expected yeah you know progress through the sermon or through the service including a sermon um and there are these two sacraments that yeah. you know baptism and and communion um so uh so yeah i, I think that's one answer is like we all yeah. do it it's yeah. just the extent and sort of the meaning you place on it yeah um um, well, of course, there are many other sacraments, uh, particularly in a tradition like Anglicanism. Mm. Um, we don't need to go through all of them, but but sort of as you think of beyond those two, you know, commanded that most Christians share. What are the, what are some of the other sacraments that you sort of find most meaningful or or sort of core to uh, who you are as an Anglican? Yeah, so I think um, the the distinction we would make is between the two gospel sacraments, which mm -hmm. are baptism and Lord's Supper, and sacramentals. Mm. Okay. Um, and so, for instance, the Catholic Church uh, has seven sacraments, mm -hmm. you know, stuff like marriage would be included that there are other parts, but um, part of our Protestant shows in the, that we have two. Um, but thinking of sacramental things, like just just to give an example about how things get rooted down in the church, um, it's Ash Wednesday. Mm -hmm. And so a huge part of what we do in Ash Wednesday is we confess our sins. Our, mm -hmm. our Ash Wednesday service is full of confession. And confession is always a part of our um, service. Uh, every Sunday morning, anytime we have morning or evening prayer or Holy Eucharist, we, we confess our sins. And that would be something where there's a next level thing for us where everybody knows confession is good. And is, is, but we kind of, we love the practice of confessing our sins in church together. We do have confession. Um, uh, so it, it's a next level of seeing when, when, you know, Jesus is talking to Peter about forgiving sins and how the church mm -hmm. has this place of speaking absolution, um, that happens in church. Mm -hmm. And so we, we confess our sins in church and we hear the church speak an absolution over us through a priest or a bishop. Mm -hmm. Um, and again, it's not that like, we're not saying that if you didn't do that, you're not forgiven. It's all about Jesus and, mm -hmm. you know. But that is a sacramental moment of experiencing confession in, in a part of the church where you have this weekly, again, if you're going to morning or evening prayer daily, 
time where you get to live into with the life of the church confession and and hearing your forgiveness spoken over to you. So there's so many things we do. We speak blessing. You know, our concept of blessing mm. is is really connected. Where, like, I think if you study the Bible, you see that like the blessing. Think of like Jacob, mm. you know, and and the the patriarchs and the how huge blessing plays in the role of Genesis. Like we don't take blessing lightly. Yeah. Um, and something that has to happen every week in our liturgy is the priest ends with a blessing, with God's blessing. Um, that he's given, he's blessed his church and the church is this vehicle of blessing. So it, it's just, yeah, it's, it's seeing all these things, which are, again, are great ideas. They, there's these moments in the life of the church where they're experienced and tasted and lived out and entered into in an embodied way. Um, I think that is a part of the, the tapestry of how we think about these things. Yeah, it's fascinating. Well, thanks for sharing on that. One of the other things that Mackenzie in this book, uh, The Anglican Way, really emphasizes, and, and if you read around Anglicanism, you'll hear the phrase uh, via media mm-hmm. um, or the middle way. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned that earlier. You actually talked, I think you said middle way um, yeah. earlier in the conversation. Just give us a sense of what that, what's that referring to and, and what's that trying to capture? Yeah, man, that's a, that's a great question. So yeah, middle way, I mean, the, the most bizarre part about Anglicanism is that we are reformed Catholicism, <laughs> which, uh, I always tell people it sounds like jumbo shrimp, you know, it's like, it's like that doesn't, you can't be, you know, but we are reformed Catholics. J.I. Packer, who's a great um, Anglican, he loved Catholic evangelicalism, which I I like as well. But basically we are this tradition that stands in between um, Roman Catholicism and and the rest of Protestantism. And um, where that comes from is, uh, you know, we came out of the English Reformation. So we came out of the time of the Reformation and there's always been a church in England going back to the, you know, second or third centuries or whatever. Um, the one holy Catholic and apostolic church in the British Isles, the English speaking world. And at the Reformation, it was reformed. So if you read our kind of 39 articles, like the doctrinal statements that come out of the 16th century, they're very reformed. Um, so we, we share that similarity with a, a lot of our other Reformed Protestant brothers and sisters. And yet, um, there was a lot of babies that weren't thrown out with the bathwater. Mm. So, for instance, the, the, his, the historic apostolic orders in the church of bishops and priests and deacons, that was not thrown out. And a lot of the sacramental and liturgical life mm-hmm. um, was retained um, at the same time that a lot of the theology was reformed. So, I think the the... I mean, a great quote, there's some bishop who said this, I can't remember who it was, that, you know, Anglicanism is the the children of divorce between Protestantism and Catholicism. That's always mm. wanted to see their parents get back together again. You know, <laughs> it's kind of this, this both and. Mm. Uh, one way to think of it is if evangelicalism, Protestantism was a neighborhood of which I do consider myself a part. So when I'm with all of our, you know, I... I happily hang out with you as an EV free person. And we, um, I'm with you, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, but in that neighborhood, we're like the, the most Catholic great tradition, right. um, kind of sacramental you can get. And then in the great tradition neighborhood, you know, and I don't know if people in these neighborhoods would like our presence there. That's not for <laughs> me to say, but like in the Catholic Orthodox neighborhood of the kind of historic traditions, you know, alongside Roman Catholicism and Orthodoxy 
Anglicanism is the third largest denomination mm. in the world. Mm. Um, all over the world, goes back all the way. I, I would consider us the house in that neighborhood that's the most Protestant and evangelical right. in that world. So yeah. it's right on the border of these uh, neighborhoods. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Yeah. And, and yeah. so again, that's where the middle way comes from. Yeah. We are shaped by the biblical evangelical values of the Reformation, and yet we are fully uh, shaped by the historicity and the apostolicity and the sacramental life that the church has always had throughout history. Yeah. Well, I, I appreciate you saying we could hang out in the Protestant neighborhood. Absolutely. I, I think of um, uh, a, a famous evangelical free church leader, Arnold Olson, who led, he sort of helped found the evangelical free church denomination back in the 50s. Um, he would often talk about the free church tradition as the left wing of the Reformation. And mm -hmm. he didn't mean that in a political sense or a theological sense. He meant it in this sort of getting rid of yeah. almost an Anabaptist sense, getting rid of mm -hmm. all the sacraments, all the structure. Yeah. Um, so I like that. I'm, I'm sort of hanging yeah. out on one edge of that neighborhood. Yeah. You're on the other, but uh, we're and in the same neighborhood. <laughs> to go back to the previous, yeah. you know, what we were talking about before with like word and sacrament, I, mm. you know, I think a helpful thing to understand the middle way there, and this is probably what he talks about in his book too. Um, but a huge part is the, the emphasis at the same time of both word and sacrament. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. I'm, you know, both Protestantism and, and Roman Catholicism believe in word and sacrament. It would be egregious for me to say it's not so, but there is an emphasis in those traditions. I think uh, for a lot of Roman Catholics, the the emphasis on on mass and the liturgy. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're you're going for the liturgy and for the for the Eucharist at mass is 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 I think um, emphasized. It might be said, and in Protestant traditions, it is not a stretch to say that the the word is emphasized. Right, right. Um, and you know. I, I think seeing both of those things um, together is a huge part of what makes us the middle way is the dual emphasis. Yeah, yeah. That makes a lot of sense to me. Um, you mentioned earlier on that uh, your church, Christ Church, is part of the ACNA, the, Amer the Anglican Church in North America. Yeah. Give us a sense of what, what that means and how that would differentiate you from other Anglicans or Episcopalians. Sure. Um, so the ACNA, just to like say it in like a few sentences if mm -hmm. I can do it briefly. So the Anglican church in America has always been the Episcopalian church mm -hmm. um, and the Anglican community again is worldwide. Um, but like By many- the way, I thought it was interesting. This is something in McKinsey's book. Yeah. That the, the, the decision to become the Episcopalian church was largely a branding issue. Yeah. Anglican means from England or yeah. from the English. Yeah. And so as the American Revolution was happening, the last thing you wanted to be was, you know, from yeah. England. Yeah. Uh, anyway, I, th I just thought that was interesting. Oh, yeah. Like, oh, it's, it's that simple. It's a, it's a branding issue. Yep. The, the, <laughs> that, the that our American is showing there for yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah. So the, Sorry, the global world me. word is Anglican, you yeah, know, so yeah. the, the, there are more Anglicans in Nigeria than there are in England and all over the world, they would be right. Anglican. Right. Uh, they switched it. Yeah. George Washington was an Anglican, interestingly <laughs> enough. Um, so yeah, the Episcopalian church has always been the Anglican church. It's just the, what Anglicanism has gone by in the States with a, with a lot of mainline churches, um, many gospel faithful Episcopalian churches as felt like the Episcopalian church was really drifting in its mm -hmm. theology from the faith once delivered to all the saints mm -hmm. um, and was kind of abandoning our historic confessions and our biblical faithfulness. And so, I mean, not to give you all the dates and everything, but in the early 2000s, you had a lot of these faithful Episcopalian churches 
wanting to stay in communion and restore the biblical faithfulness of Anglicanism. Mm. And so they they came out of the Episcopalian church to kind of join in with the, the broader global Anglican communion and took back the Anglican global word. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the ACNA was formed as a new kind of denomination or what we would call a province for a lot of these churches um, that are really looking to be restored to fellowship with faithful Anglicanism around the world um, out of Episcopalianism. So that's yeah. the ACNA. Yeah. Great. Um, and and one of the, we're, we're rounding here to just the last few questions, but one of them is, um, and this ties into the ACNA story, just the global nature of the Anglican church. Yeah. Um, many denominations have a global dimension. Um, the Anglican church has a little more structure to it. So there's, yeah. there's you know, me- regular meetings uh, yeah. around the globe. How does that shape your understanding of your faith that it's it's not um, it's part of this global church that the Anglican Church I think you might have mentioned this is largely uh, you know numbers wise yeah. is, is uh, you know in the in Africa yeah. in Asia yeah um, yeah what, what thoughts do you have just about the global nature of, of the <laughs> Anglican Church yeah man it's just so precious it's such mm-hmm. a gift um, I think one, especially as a church planner you know when we planted our church it can just feel like you're like having to make it up like what are we going to do you know Mm -hmm. i have to like decide these things and i just Mm -hmm. always tell our people like i don't decide anything you know Mm -hmm. like my job is to be very faithful to a global historic Mm -hmm. faith Mm -hmm. and that's christianity i mean c.s lewis was anglican he wrote mere christianity like part of what we're doing is we just want to be faithful to mere historic orthodox christian practice and having the tradition be so global um, is just massively helpful. Mm-hmm. And so not only am I coming under um, all the things that are in our country with ACNA and my bishop and our diocese, these things that I, I have a life of submission and faithfulness to, um, but we are in communion with all these people around the globe. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is a is an enormous benefit from their perspective and everything else. And if you know anything about Anglican news right now, there's a, a big example of the way that this is working out because the right. Church of England which is all the Anglicans in England, which mm. is historically where it all came from. You know, right. the Archbishop of Canterbury is there and all this stuff. Um, but they have been making some decisions that are kind of a further departure for them from historic biblical faithfulness. And you're seeing the rest of the world, the global communion, um, really being able to react and respond and discipline and mm. and give voice to, they don't have the blinders that we have in the West, you know? so. That part of it is it's really protecting, it's enriching, um, uh, but it's it's a it's a precious precious part because it's not a it's not a white church, it's not a Western church, it's a it's a global communion. Right, and and I I want to I think it's a pretty inspiring um, fact. There has to be tensions though too. Like I think about um, uh, you know on certain maybe social issues there's there's sort of a shared understanding, but on other social issues I can think about um, even you know, a lot of these churches are in, in, uh, Africa or these, these yeah. Anglicans are in Africa and the, the history of sort of imperialism in Africa, yeah. some by Britain and yeah. the church of England. Oh my gosh. So, so connected. Th- th- yeah. So those things must yeah. come up at, at sort of the same point that you can agree on a lot. There's other things that are sort of pretty tense or, or yeah. touchy. <laughs> no, that's so true. And I would yeah. say the two things, I mean, the, the, the two tensions in our tradition and like everybody has their tensions, right? Mm-hmm. The idea of the middle way, reformed mm. Catholicism, mm. you know, is is a tension. Mm. 
And a lot of times people who can't handle the reformed part end up becoming Catholic. And a lot of times people who can't handle the Catholic apostolic nature of it can't handle it and, and go yeah. to whatever further Protestant tradition doesn't have any of that, you know? Yeah. So that's attention mm -hmm. and, and whatever Anglican church you go to will, you'll feel a different flavor of how that tension is expressed and articulated. Mm -hmm. I think the other tension in Anglicanism, one of the beautiful parts of Anglicanism is mere Christianity. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we, we do not think that we are the only way to be the church. Mm. So there are some traditions that I think like, no, we are the church. And like, mm. it's a shame that you're not mm -hmm. a part mm -hmm. of us, you know, <laughs> whereas Anglicanism doesn't think that we, we like have a really generous spirit towards different denominations. And, um, again, C.S. Lewis is writing mere Christianity as an Anglican. Um, and there's a lot of ecumenical, um, like that they may all be one earnestness in the Anglican communion. Like we, we are a great, we try to bring people together and we're a huge part of the ecumenical movement in the 19th and 20th century. Um, and so you get really distilled, like here's the things we agree on. So there's this like classic formulary for Anglican belief that came out of the 19th century, which is four things. It's called the Lambeth Quadrilateral. Mm. New Testament and Old Testament is all things, word of God. All, you know, it's mm. like we're Bible people, um, the creeds, you know, Nicene in particular, I think came out of the Lambeth Quadrat is like, this is sufficient statement of the Christian faith. We're creedal, you know, mm -hmm. um, the two sacraments and the historic episcopate, which is the bishops locally applied is like, mm -hmm. that's where we're are. Like we can all join in together. And I love that about Anglicanism, but a huge tension is that there's also a lot of room, like it can lend itself sometimes to fuzziness. And there are some right. traditions that like dot every I and cross every T. You have to believe this about everything. There's a little more space in Anglicanism, but the tension there, and again, this would happen between different countries and places, right? Right. right. Um, is when people disagree on what should be a major or a minor. Right. Yeah. Well, I think about just in my own church experience, um, my church is very, uh, has moved into a very, intentional sort of multicultural framework where yeah. you're trying to sort of welcome many different types of backgrounds into the church sort of intentionally. Um, and that creates all types of tensions, like, yeah. like down to what song should we sing to really fundamental things about how yeah. you conduct your service. And I think of the Anglican church as that like on a global scale in a way yeah. where you're, you're often probably having to sift what here is cult, what here is sort of just cultural preference yeah. versus something that is core to what it means to be an Anglican. And the more people you invite to the table, uh, yeah. the more opinions you're going to have <laughs> about those things. Yes. Um, yes. Yeah. Well, I wanted to end, uh, Scott, with you know a question that might be the reason I asked you here mm. in the first place, which was to talk about the Inklings, mm. um, and particularly uh, you know people like C.S. Lewis, who we've mentioned a few times here, who was an Anglican himself. And I just, in my own life, um, and it, it's not an accident. Like I, I've sought out things to read yeah. from the Anglican tradition. But I've just noticed, and it might it might just be a British thing. That could be the whole answer to this. Is I'm yeah. actually just interested in British writers, not Anglican writers. But there's something about um, people coming out of the Anglican tradition. I think of C.S. Lewis. I think of N.T. Wright as a as mm -hmm. a, a historian theologian that I really like, who's also yeah um, an Anglican. And I just wondered your thoughts. This is your chance to sort of trumpet your own tradition's literary mm -hmm. uh, genius. Um, mm -hmm. Is there something in the Anglican? Uh, background to a lot of these great uh, T.S. Eliot's another one you mentioned. Yeah, um, that 
that that can lend themselves to sort of the sacramental worldview as sort of the thing that yeah um, is part of their genius. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I'll I'll say two things, and this is this is going way off piece, but it's fun. Mm-hmm. Um, the first thing I would say is Anglicanism. The treasure of Anglicanism is our liturgy and the beauty mm-hmm. of our liturgy. So a huge part of what happened in the Anglican Church that was unique is the historic liturgies of the church were translated into the vernacular mm-hmm. in English. Mm-hmm. And um, that and the Book of Common Prayer. So if, if you know anything about the Book of Common right. Prayer or Anglicanism, uh, Thomas Cramner was a huge part of the writing of the Book of Common Prayer, which is the Bible organized from worship. It's where our liturgy comes from. And uh, really the gift of Anglicanism, and I think in the English tradition, is just what came out in particular of the 16th century in literature was just pretty crazy. So you have King James, which to this day is just a monument of literature, aside from its translation, what it meant spiritually, Mm -hmm. just as a work of art, it's stunning. Mm -hmm. And the Book of Common Prayer, um, even if you've never been Anglican, so much of how you think about sacred words and cadences and wedding liturgies and everything comes from this deep tradition of literature. And so, it's just beautiful. Mm-hmm. And I think that was one of the first things that struck me the first time I heard liturgies in the Book of Common Prayer was just how gorgeous it was. Mm-hmm. Not, not just how beautiful and meaningful it was with Scripture. And so I think there's a, it's like inherently beautiful and aesthetic and literary mm-hmm. that I think draws a lot of people. So W.H. Auden mm. was an Anglican, I think, because he got super mad at his priests when he tried to change the liturgy. Um, but you know, you have these people who are drawn to the beauty. So it, Anglican churches tend to draw artists and, and writers because there's just a, a, a gorgeousness to its literary tradition. It just is a really stunning literature, literary tradition. So I think that's part of it is, is it is very wound up with just our English literary history in right. the way that the King James Bible and the Book of Common Prayer, those two books, I mean, have shaped like the English literary tradition. I don't right. think that's an overstatement. No, that's, yeah, that's right. The second thing I would say is, um, I can't remember the first time that I heard this or started thinking about this, but there's a, the imagination between the Catholic and Protestant imagination. Um, the Catholic imagination is, is broadly looking back at what's been lost. And so you have a lot of fantasy written by great Catholic writers. So like you think Tolkien, of J.R. Yeah. Tolkien. And, yeah. The Catholic impulse, and I'm not even saying Roman Catholic, I'm just thinking like the, the deep historic traditional impulse is like what's wrong with the world is that we've, we've forgotten things that need to be recovered. There's like this beautiful sense of mystery and enchantment and like reclaiming things that have been lost. Mm-hmm. Again, Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. The Protestant imagination um, oftentimes is more inclined to science fiction and stuff like this because it's looking forward, it's progress, it's all these things. And you can see it in different authors, how Mm -hmm. this has panned out. I think the first time I heard this idea was from a guy named Alan Jacobs, who I actually used to go, he was at, went to that little church I went to and Mm. he writes about fantasy and science fiction, all this stuff. But anyways, I'm fascinated by that tension and the Catholic imagination and the Protestant imagination when it comes to literature Mm -hmm. and when it comes to, um, stories and ideas and everything. And again, Anglicanism just kind of tends to have a sense of the both. And I wonder for somebody like C.S. Lewis, um, who's deeply sacramental, um, he has an Anglo-Catholic churchman. Yeah. 
you know, I, I think there's a, there's something there where there is a lot of room for mystery and enchantment and kind of reclaiming and re-enchanting a disenchanted world. Uh, while at the same time, I mean, he wrote a lot of science fiction, but they're very like fantasy science fiction books. Right? They are. Yeah. I don't yeah. know. Does that make sense? No, that makes total sense. And I, I, it kind of, there's, it's, there's a lot going on there. I, thanks for channeling Jacobs. I haven't, I hadn't heard that particular formulation, but that'll give me a lot yeah. to think about. Okay. We'll end with two fact checks. Was T.S. Eliot a Catholic or an Anglican? Anglican. Anglican. He was. Okay. I'm yeah. glad I got that right. Yeah. And then correct me if I'm wrong, but G.K. Chesterton for most of his life was Anglican and then converted to Catholicism. Um, I, I always thought he was not a Christian and then went straight to Catholicism was okay. my impression. Cause okay. I know he grew up like, I think he grew up, I don't know if he would have said atheist or secular or whatever, yeah. but I, I don't know. We'll have to look at, we'll have yeah, to both we'll have fact to check, check ourselves, yeah. but I, I think he just, be, I never thought he was an Anglican. I thought he was always Catholic. Okay. Okay. But I could be wrong. There's nothing f more fun than ending a podcast with two people who don't know the yeah. facts <laughs> that we're talking about. So uh, we'll end it there. Scott, thank you for the conversation. Thanks for your work here in Madison. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. Thanks for joining us. If you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure to subscribe and give us a rating on your favorite podcast app. Also, be sure to check out our upcoming events on upperhouse.org. The Upwards podcast is supported by the Stephen and Laurel Brown Foundation. It is produced at Upper House in Madison, Wisconsin. Hosted by Dan Hummel, music by Micah Bear, audio engineering by Jesse Koopman, and graphic design by Madeline Ramsey. Please follow us on social media, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn with the handle at Upper House UW.